Did the indigenous elders and chiefs absolutely not discuss surrender, which was then part of the treaties with Canadians? Do oral accounts and eyewitness testimony reveal the surrender clause was a result of cultural misunderstanding between commissioners and indigenous peoples, or was it part of a deliberate deception on the part of the Canadian government? What were the dynamics of the negotiations that precipitated the tactics employed by the treaty commissioners? Is there proof that the surrender clause was imposed fraudulently into the record? This week on the Global Research News Hour, following the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation commemorating the trauma experienced by First Nations on this land resulting from the government and church policies, we will be focusing on the treaties signed between the First Nations of this soil and the European visitors which provided a basis for access to the land and what was taken away from the original dwellers here and the lengthy life of sorrow and dread that was their result. Our lone guest for the entire hour will be Sheldon Krasowski, the academic and currently the Director of Research and Archives at the Office of the Treaty Commissioner in Saskatoon, into his book, No Surrender, The Land Remains Indigenous, on his findings that the treaties were signed on a foundation of government fraud and deception. On this week's program, Indigenous Treaty Relations in Canada, the History and the Cover-Up. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 6, 2023. The program is funded by the Centre for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge that this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. Treaties between settlers and indigenous people were not honored on the settler side, resulting in generations of colonialism and genocide. The settler descendants can now correct the past by reparations and restoring respect for their First Nations brothers and sisters. Now it's time for News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. The neocons' agenda is not to, quote, win the war, unquote, but to engineer the breakup of sovereign nation-states destroy their culture and national identity, derogate fundamental values and human rights. The strategic objective is to trigger political and social chaos, engineer the collapse of national economies, appropriate the country's wealth and resources, impoverish the entire planet, including the American homeland. It's a mesh of weapons of mass destruction, covert intelligence operations, propaganda, and, quote, strong economic medicine, unquote. 
The criminality of the U.S.-NATO hegemonic agenda is beyond description. This short article focuses on women's rights in Afghanistan, quote-unquote, before and, quote-unquote, after the conduct of Washington's, quote, humanitarian war, unquote, against Afghanistan, which commenced at the height of the Cold War in 1979. It comes from the article, Women's Rights in Afghanistan, quote-unquote, before and, quote-unquote, after America's destructive wars, by Professor Michelle Chosodovsky, posted October 4th. House Democrats voted as a bloc together with the eight activist House Republicans to oust Speaker McCarthy. That was an emotional move by impotent Democrats and not a wise decision. The House Democrats have now thrown their own government into a chaos which is likely to last the next month, if not for longer. In effect, the House Democrats have put the U.S. government in peril of having to be shut down on 17th of November 2023 when the temporary funding ends, and with that, of course, also shutting down their own U.S. proxy government of Ukraine with no funds. That comes from the article, U.S. Democrats commit suicide with ouster of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, shut down of U.S. government in November. By Karsten Reese, posted October 4th. Listen to the Nobel Committee's ignorance, incompetence, participation in disinformation supporting population control and infertility. Quote, the laureates contributed to the unprecedented rate of vaccine development during one of the greatest threats to human health in modern times. Unquote. Actual, real medical scientists have concluded that the quote-unquote vaccine killed and injured more people than did COVID. That comes from the article, The Nobel Prize has been politicized. The Nobel Committee has awarded the prize to two quote-unquote scientists who concocted the most dangerous quote-unquote vaccine ever released. By Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, posted October 4th, originally published on the Institute for Political Economy. Young people in this case, ages 0 to 24, which includes children of all ages, are dying at a record level since the pandemic started. As I'm going to take a bit of a break from the COVID-19 vaccine turbo cancers killing young people, it is worth asking what else might be contributing to these deaths. Beyond the heart attacks and the blood clots, there are all types of autoimmune diseases caused by COVID-19 mRNA vaccines and the endless immune system aberrations that may be contributing to quote-unquote mysterious deaths of young people. Type 1 diabetes and diabetic ketoacidosis, this is one of them. That comes from the article, New On-Site Type 1 Diabetes After COVID-19 mRNA Vaccination, Potentially Fatal Diabetic Ketoacidosis in Children Ages 5 to 12 Years Old, by Dr. William Mackis, 
posted October 4th, originally published on COVID Intel. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. This is the Global Research News Hour, and I'm Michael Welch. This last Saturday was a day commemorating Truth and Reconciliation Day uh, toward the Indigenous people of this land dealt a blow by colonial and unjust practices. Thousands took to the streets in every major city in Canada. Uh, some of us are, are seeking to correct this record, and, and so we are devoting time to this principle on the program for a change. Uh, I'm, it's past the mic week, it's a CKUW, and I will pass the mic over to a friend of mine, and, and he will be conducting the interview with a special person for the duration of the hour. So with that, I will let him introduce himself and introduce, introduce us to our guest. Hello and good day to all the listeners joining us. Our exciting program today is about Indigenous treaty relations in Canada, the history and the cover-up. My name is Thomas White Thunderbird. I'm Ojibwe speaking from Treaty 1 territory. It is my sincere honor to introduce Dr. Sheldon Krasowski to the program. Welcome, Sheldon, and thank you for taking your time today to discuss treaty. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Sheldon, could you uh, please just give us a brief background as to um, how you got into this work? Absolutely. Uh, I was born in Saskatoon. I'm of uh, Ukrainian and German heritage. My family were settlers, newcomers. Uh, they arrived in Saskatchewan to farm like so many others. And I became interested in uh, Indigenous history, Indigenous culture, Indigenous traditions as an undergraduate at the University of Saskatchewan. I started studying in 1989. And it was quite early on in my studying that I became interested in, in, in Indigenous studies and quite soon after that, that I started to study treaties. So I've probably been studying the number of treaties since my honors thesis in for my undergraduate, which I think was 1993. And yeah, that's that's my background. Uh, that's the beginnings of uh, my start to studying treaty history. And I can talk a little bit more about that. Or um, if you have any specific questions about that, I can answer that as well. Yeah, I guess uh, what actually made that decision to further continue the research after your um, your uh, your graduate your degree into um, the history of uh, of uh, First Nations? Well, it's a good question because the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples can be very uneasy. Back in 1993. Um, when I would ask people what treaty area are you from, or even what is your knowledge about treaties, it wasn't that they would have just a little bit of knowledge, but it was just like kind of like a, an open vacuum. There was like no sure. no understanding, no real knowledge of treaty back, back in the 90s. And so it was really challenging to try to, try to find those sources and to uh, decide, okay, well, what was I gonna study? What was I gonna focus on if I was gonna do uh, graduate work in that area? Yeah, I was actually a sessional lecturer at First Nations University of Canada. This would have been around the mid 1990s. And one of one of the students in my class said, uh, everything that's gone wrong 
between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples in Canada can be traced back to the treaties. And this was a saying of his grandfather. And it really resonated with me because number one, I had an, an inkling that he was 100% correct, but I didn't really know from a scholarly perspective how to address that. And then that became the focus of my research after that. Okay, well, what went wrong after treaty and, and why did that occur? So that became a, a focus for me. So yeah, it's both kind of um, in Indigenous communities, but also about um, Indigenous relations and the treaty relationship itself. Well, I'd, I'd like to share that as the same sentiment I felt when I saw your presentation uh, here at the Forks in Winnipeg was uh, everything can be traced back to the treaties and you eloquently describe it into every little detail and nuance there is possible. So naturally, I guess, going further in the study, uh, you felt compelled also to write a book about it. Yeah, it's really interesting. So um, to get into the into the research, of course, um, this is within a within a university. Uh, this was for my uh, PhD research. Basically, you need to kind of follow the rules and regulations of a of the university. But I was really lucky in that the my chair for my research was Dr. Winona Wheeler. She's Cree from Fisher River Cree Nation, north of Winnipeg. She's mm -hmm. from five. And she was really a mentor for me in terms of guiding my research. And I was bound by those academic rules, like you need a point to argue, you need a thesis, you need to do a literature review, you need to do all this background research. And so I went ahead and I did that. And I decided that I wanted to focus on land and I wanted to focus specifically on the surrender clause that's in the treaty text. And so once I uh, finished that, I decided this is gonna be my argument I took that proposal back to her. She said, I only want you to focus on oral histories, elders, oral histories, um, people who were knowledgeable about treaty, knowledge keepers, uh, interview people, look at uh, recorded interviews, look at transcribed interviews, look at interviews online, and don't look at any of the archival sources for that, for that year. And so I did spend just that year really getting engulfed in the oral history. And like I said, I was lucky. I was at the Treaty Commissioner's office at the time, and I was able to uh, both interview elders and rely on a lot of the oral history collection that's here. But I also went outside that. There's the Treaty and Aboriginal Rights Research that has um, a huge collection of, of oral histories from all over Western Canada, not just Treaty 1, not just Treaty 6, but all the way, Treaty 9, Treaty 11, out east. And after that year, one of the things that really stuck out was that all of these elders in all these different territories, many of whom guaranteedly had never met, all had the same argument that the number of treaties were meant to be land sharing treaties and the surrender clause was never discussed during the negotiations. So this idea of treaties being surrender treaties was completely not part of indigenous oral history. And so that was those that was one of the themes that I took through that through that year of oral history. But that was the main theme that I decided to focus on my research when I went into the archives for I guess year three of my of my project. And, and I'm assuming that Dr. Renona Wheeler knew that this would happen when she told you to focus on the oral histories. <laughs> Pretty much once I said I was going to focus on land and once I said I wanted to focus on this idea of the surrender clause, then she she knew that I'm just guessing now, but she knew that the oral history of that 
would be of supreme importance. And meeting of the minds did not take place. Rather than uh, having understandings of the treaty negotiations, uh, that there were common misunderstandings. And this goes back to uh, G.F.G. Stanley. He published this thesis in 1930. So it's kind of an old idea, but it was really prevalent. Um, it's still prevalent today, but it was really prevalent in the 90s when I started doing my research. Many academics basically said, well, treaties are important, but an, a common understanding did not take place during the negotiations. And because of that, there isn't really a strong interpretation of treaty. Indigenous peoples are an oral culture. They... Um, they had uh, different traditions, uh, Euro-Canadian or uh, the settler tradition focused on the written word, and a meeting of the minds just did not take place. You end up continuing your research, and then you've uh, published sort of the culmination of your life's work into the book No Surrender, The Land Remains Indigenous in 2019 from the University of Regina. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I, I wonder how long did it actually take you to realize that the book needed to happen? Um, well, it was interesting because I was I was very much um, like I'd taken those indigenous oral histories. I'd seen that idea, um, like so many different videos of of different elders, and they all had they all said it in different ways. Like Elder Gordon Oaks would put one fist on top of the other, and he was mainly a Cree speaker, so he would speak in Cree, and he had this this idea that many elders had that um, we only agreed to share our land to the depth of a plow, and he'd put put one hand, one fist on top of the other. Some elders would um, would stretch their fingers and they would say, we only agree to share the land to the depth of a plow. So I had this really uh, visual um, argument. And so my, um, my, my focus ended up being, well, can I show through archival research that the elders are correct, that they did not agree to the land surrender that is in the treaty text, that they agreed to share their land with newcomers, to the depth of a plow. And so I would like I like I um mentioned in my talk in in Winnipeg uh for the Manitoba Treaty Commissioner that the I went to um all different kinds of archives. I went to Library and Archives Canada, I went to church archives, I went to provincial archives, I went to um little collections in First Nations, uh just looking for um archival sources on uh, the treaty negotiations, and I decided to focus on the negotiations themselves. So I decided to focus on um, getting as many accounts of the negotiations as I could from the archives. So I focused on eyewitness accounts, um, missionaries accounts, Northwest Mount of Police accounts, um, basically anyone who was there who left an account of the negotiations. And I decided to do one thing a little bit differently than other academics had done in the past. I decided that I would focus on um, not just a single treaty. Um, treaty, treaty history is very complicated. And one of the ways that uh, academics try to um, limit the complications is by focusing. And so academics had focused on individual treaties. So there ha had been a book on Treaty 6. There had been a, tr a book on Treaty 9. But I decided I wanted to focus on treaties 1 through 8. One through seven ended up in the book just because of space, but I was actually doing research on treaties one through eight in the archives. And one of the things that I noticed right away in looking at all these eyewitness accounts of the negotiations is that at not at any point in any of the recorded negotiations is the surrender of land or even land per se mentioned in the archival documents. 
And so right away, I was thinking, um, well, the elders are correct. They did not agree to surrender their land. In fact, land was never discussed. And my argument for that was that Canada had a strategic plan. The treaty commissioners had a plan in their treaty negotiations to not mention land, to mention only the benefits of treaty and none of the liabilities. And that's the argument that I make in the book, which I then support through archival documents. The, the only point in my research that I really found what you could say a smoking gun to support the thesis from the elders that I had done in the oral history research was a single document by Simon James Dawson. And Simon James Dawson was one of the treaty commissioners for Treaty 3. And it's really interesting because he kept his own account of the Treaty 3 negotiations. It's in a little, I can uh, email it to you guys. It's in a little, uh, little notebook at Library and Archives Canada. And it was collected with his documents and it's, uh, it's in the collection. But it had basically been ignored because um, Simon James Dawson, even though he was a treaty commissioner, he ends up being kind of a, a minor figure in the Canadian government. But he, ke he kept his own account of Treaty 3 of the negotiations, and he never shared them with the other treaty commissioners. And when you compare the official account of the negotiations, which was recorded by the main treaty commissioner, Alexander Morris, with Simon James Dawson's account, you can see that the official account actually insert evidence of a land surrender into the speeches of the negotiations, which was not there. So there's this kind of careful, meticulous analysis that I had to do basically from, from 2010 all the way to 2019. I'm comparing all these different sources, and I'm realizing that Simon James Dawson's account is missing a lot of the surrender language. Basically, the um, Canada, the treaty commissioners um, insert this idea in one of the chief's speeches, basically saying that the chief gave up his birthright and lands at the close of the Treaty 3 negotiations. That's in the official account, but it's not in Simon James Dawson's account. So not only is the land and the surrender clause not mentioned during the negotiations, but Canada goes out of their way to emphasize a surrender of lands when none was discussed in any of the number treaty negotiations. And so, yeah, that was basically the argument I make uh, in my dissertation and then later revised as a manuscript for uh, University of Regina Press. That's incredible that it's uh, it's continued into the book and the book is fascinating. I feel like you do uh, justice and give a really good balanced um, perspective from all peoples involved in the process of treaty making. And I think it would be a great idea to um, illuminate a little bit of how that process sort of began and, and worked into sort of how it yeah began. Uh, it, it created the prevent provinces and all the sort of Canadian colonization uh, land title rights. So in your mm -hmm. book, you do um, describe it very, very in detail how it started uh, initially and then it grew out into uh, land title sort of negotiations. Yeah, the treaty negotiations are interesting. A lot of people I can just kind of do like a little little quick backgrounder as well. Um, even today, like uh, I, I worked for the Office of the Treaty Commissioner in the 1990s when I was just starting my research. And then I went off and did other things, worked at different universities. And I came back to the Office of the Treaty Commissioner in uh, 2020. And I, it's it's really lucky 
because um, I get to talk about treaty all the time. Uh, I, we do other research as well, which we can talk about a little bit later. But um, treaty is this all-encompassing kind of uh, perspective, like we mentioned at the beginning, everything goes back to treaty. But treaties itself are very complicated because they deal with land, but they also deal with um, many other aspects of uh, settlement. Uh, for instance, um, the depth of a plow uh, from the oral history, which I'd mentioned earlier, is a very, I think of it as, um, oh, I think of it as very, I guess, um, it's almost fortuitous. Like, yeah, well, it's it's kind of the essence of of the oral history and, and the essence of treaty, and it and it really makes sense within that context. I'm not thinking of the word that I want to use, but it makes sense in the in the context because during the treaty negotiations, settlers were just arriving, like my grandparents, which were a little bit later, mm -hmm. and that what they wanted to do is that they wanted to farm. Treaty One is really interesting because there are two um, woodcut images of the Treaty One negotiations, and you can see the treaty commissioners, and you can see some of the chiefs, like Chief Henry Prince is there, and, and the other chiefs are there in the background. But you see all these uh, non-Indigenous people in the crowd and behind the treaty commissioners, and there was really this anxiousness and anxiety that settlers wanted to come in and farm, and they couldn't do that until treaty was concluded. So there was a lot of pressure. I described this um, strategic plan from the treaty commissioners to um, to emphasize only the benefits of treaty. And that's because there was immense pressure to have treaties concluded. People don't know this, but one of the, um, for Treaty 3, it's 1873. So we have Treaty 1 in 1871, Treaty 1 and Treaty 2 in 1871, and then we have Treaty 3 in 1873. But the Treaty 3 negotiations actually started in 1869. In 1869, uh, it was Simon James Dawson was the very first treaty commissioner, and he negotiated a right of way for the Canadian military for the first Red River resistance in 1869. That right of way is actually the beginning of a treaty, but that right of way only involves um, access. And so in 1870, 1871, 1872, each of those years, the treaty commissioners tried to negotiate with the Anishinaabeg chiefs in Treaty 3 territory. And each time the chief said, no, they would not agree to treaty. It's not until 1873, four years later, that they finally agree. So there's this kind of misconception that, um, and this goes back to George F. Stanley, who had this common misunderstandings thesis. He also said that the commissioners just presented the treaty documents and that the chiefs had no option other than to accept treaty. But that doesn't make sense in terms of that context of Treaty 3. If that's the case, why did it take four years to negotiate Treaty 3? So I found that really interesting as well in terms of the critique of GFG Stanley. But yeah, there are all these different aspects of, of treaty and they all connect to um, access of the land. Um, reserved lands, people say, oh, First Nations got land through treaties. Well, that's not the case. Um, reserves were referred to as Iskomkin, that which is held back. These are First Nations traditional territories that are held back by First Nations as their reserve lands. And the other part of, of treaty, which we can discuss other aspects of well, but what is connected to land is the peace and good order clause. 
And this it was this idea that um, First Nations would have their own jurisdiction, their own control of their lands, and um, and Canada would have their own. So the treaty relationship becomes more of a partnership. And some of the language that's used around this, um, the late Harold Johnson uh, discussed this quite a bit in his work, and I highly recommend his books, not just on treaty, but on justice. And uh, in fact, one of his books is called Peace and Good Order. And he describes the treaty relationship as a relationship between brothers or between cousins or between siblings. And the idea is that um, one brother wouldn't lord over the other brother, which is what we have now with the provinces and First Nations, but rather there would be that equality. And I always try to, I mentioned that I'm able to give lots of different talks here at the Office of the Treaty Commissioner. I try to, to um, get people to imagine what uh, jurisdiction and lands would look like if we followed the spirit and intent of the number treaties. And so imagine that um, you would have land reserved for First Nations, which would be reserved lands, but then you would have um, the rest of the land would be shared equally rather than uh, what it is today, which is fee simple title mostly held by settlers. And so it's really interesting to think about spirit and intent uh, which basically means how Indigenous chiefs and Indigenous peoples imagine treaty at the time of the negotiations and how that would translate into land, which of course is, is, is not what we have today with the, with the provinces. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. I think it would be good to understand like what the views of the treaties were between both parties, because it seemed like it was a transactional agreement on one hand. And then on the indigenous side, it was, you know, like a sacred oath that um, they took um, very seriously and uh, held sort of councils and did ceremonies and made sure that, you know, um, all, all things were being considered in that, in that important time of making treaty. Absolutely. That's a really good point. Like I mentioned, it took four years for the treaty three negotiations. And prior to each treaty, there were um, days and days and days of ceremonies and meetings the chief would meet. And we know this through the archival documents because the treaty commissioners are complaining that there's all these delays before the negotiations start. And it's not just that people didn't, were just like waiting around, but the fact was that, um, the First Nations needed to be sure that they were ready to even come to treaty. And so all these meetings had to take place. It's this idea of um, communal. Um, it wasn't just one person. The The nation as a whole needed to agree. Uh, this idea of uh, communal knowledge of uh, communal governance. So it's much more time consuming, but they took the time. They took extra days. Uh, it was very, very serious. Um, the late Harold Cardinal talked about the sol solemnity of treaty, the seriousness of it. And that's very much reflected in the in these uh, in these ceremonies and these negotiations that took place. With regard to land and the um, and those ideas, part that really um, emphasizes it for me, this relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples in, is encapsulated in the pipe ceremony. So before every treaty, a pipe ceremony took place. 
And this emphasized to both parties that uh, that these were serious agreements. They would last till, as long as the sun shines, the grass grows, the rivers flow, and that each party, for each party, it was necessary to tell the truth in the negotiations. But that did not take place. In fact, this idea of um, different perspectives and common misunderstandings becomes even more prominent because the Crown, Canada and the Treaty Commissioners actually use their knowledge of First Nations to, I guess, um, to, to, to emphasize their strategic plan. Basically what they do is they focus on First Nations, really uh, the, the oral history and the idea of treaties as being, um, like I mentioned, as lasting as long as the sun shines, grass, rivers flow and grass grows. And they use that to advantage in terms of uh, treaty annuities and also how they um, propose to implement the treaties. I'm not really saying this in a good way, but the idea is that um, the Crown knew in their strategic plan that they were misleading the chiefs about things like uh, governance and lands. In fact, for Treaty 6, which was negotiated in 1876, this is the territory that I'm in right now. Uh, Treaty 6 was negotiated in 1876, but it's also the year that the Indian Act was introduced. And so under the Indian Act, you get reserved lands, you get, you get different uh, focus on lands. And Canada knew that going into the treaties, but they were using a lot of the familial treaty language. They were using uh, the pipe ceremony. They were using the trust of First Nations to get an agreement that was required by them by the Privy Council Office. So basically in my book, No Surrender, I argue that, that from my perspective, that that's fraud. I argue that that strategic plan was disingenuous and that the Crown knew that they were misleading First Nations through the treaty negotiations. Last week, we observed the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation here in, in Canada, and the CBC National News covered the historic treaty's physical archive and went to the secure location undisclosed, but they said it was near the Parliament of Canada, and they actually got to view the treaties of one through, I believe, seven or eight. Uh, I would like the audience to understand what the basis of a treaty agreement is, and is it a static, immutable written document, or is it a dynamic, forever living oath? And also, what were the treaties used for? Wow, really good questions. Definitely dynamic, ongoing, uh, oral rather than written. It's interesting that they often will bring out the, the text of treaties. I usually try to caution people about viewing the text of treaty as anything even remotely like the spirit and intent of, of treaties or the treaty relationship. I kind of view, initially I view the oral history of treaties as the most important. I view the verbal negotiations on which the treaties were based as probably a close second. I'm an archivist, I'm a historian, so I look at supporting documents around treaties uh, all of the different uh, historical documents that were created around treaty time as third. And then finally, probably the least important aspect of treaties are those are those written documents. One of the things that I will say about the written versions of treaties is if, if you're able to either view copies or view, I know the originals aren't really shown in public anymore, but if you're ever able to see 
the original handwritten versions of treaties. Uh, they are probably the most interesting. A couple of things jump out when you look at them. One is that the handwriting throughout the uh, treaty texts is uh, different in places. So one of the kind of um, misconceptions about treaty, and, and this goes back to what we talked about before with regard to George F.G. Stanley, is he had this uh, theory that um, the government of Canada had the treaties written out and he just presented them to the chiefs and the chiefs signed them and there was no actual negotiations. That's not only untrue because of the length of the negotiations. Uh, Treaty 6 took 12 days to negotiate. That doesn't sound like uh, a simple um, show us the treaty and we'll sign it. Uh, and you also see it when you look at the the treaties, the handwritten treaties themselves, because you see uh, you do you do see kind of a, a more legible um, handwritten um, treaty text, and um, historians refer to this as the treaty template. But the interesting thing about that is they left um, whole paragraph spaces and blanks. So, for instance, many people know that um, treat one of the clauses of treaty is that a, um, a annual payment would be presented to First Nations in exchange for their sharing the land and entering into a treaty relationship with Canada. And so where the amount of the annuity was to be in the template, that was blank, and it's always uh, in a different hand. Uh, and of course, different uh, parts of the negotiations, for example, um, Treaty 6 is unique because it has a medicine chest clause, and it has a famine and pestilence clause. And of course, there are spaces in the template, and then these are written in different hands. The treaty agricultural benefits, which people talk now in terms of um, specific claims known uh, informally as cows and plows claims, but this is the treaty agricultural benefit. These are again written in different hand because different First Nations at different uh, treaty negotiations had different expectations for that um, assistance with agriculture that was promised by the Crown. So although those historical documents are interesting to go back to your question, I'm very much of the perspective that the um, the spirit and intent of treaty or the treaty relationship embodies much, much more than those static immutable uh, treaty treaty texts. I greatly appreciate the title of your book, No Surrender, The Land Remains Indigenous, and we should not be faint of heart when discussing the subject. And going through all the evidence that you've gathered over the years, the sensible, rational conclusion that I came to was that, indeed, the land was stolen through tact, warlike measures to gain authority and dominion over this land. And it would seem like one of the main motivations involved would, uh, would be like a class or racial superiority. Um, and... I'm just wondering, how would you describe the overall sense of relations during the treaty making time? Wow, I wow. really like how you phrased that. I wish I had that in my book. That's, that's really well, uh, well phrased um, a point about the negotiations. Uh, that's better writing than I have. The um, the relationship was really interesting because the um, there was an enormous pressure on the treaty commissioners. So. Um, we had something called uh, uh, Johnny McDonald's National Policy. It was this um, policy from Ottawa whereby um, Johnny McDonald based his um, his uh, policies on the creation of the railway, settlement in the West, and this peaceful transition. And so because of this, because the treaty commissioners knew that a railway soon needed to be built to connect Eastern Canada to BC, 
and that uh, settlers, newcomers, were close on the heels of the Treaty Commissioner's entourage, uh, even during the negotiations themselves. There was immense pressure that treaty negotiations be successful. Interestingly, the um, negotiations for Treaty 3 actually started in 1869. So in 1869, there was a right-of-way negotiation, which we mentioned before. And then in 1870, 71, and 72, there were negotiations in Anishinaabeg territory that failed. No agreements were accomplished. And so that also put extreme pressure. Treaty 1 was concluded in 1871, but we actually have something in Treaty 1 which is unique, and uh, it's something that's called the Outside Promises. Uh, not too many people know about the Outside Promises, but um, there, if you Google or, or look up Outside Promises, uh, Treaties 1 and 2, there were um, there's a, a document that is appended to Treaty 1, and it's Formal title is Outside Promises, Promises Made Outside of the Treaty Negotiations for Treaties 1 and 2. And it's interesting because it's not promises that were made outside of the treaty negotiations. It's promises that were made during the treaty negotiations, but were not included in the text of treaty. And even though Treaty 1 was, quote unquote, successful in 1871, right away, uh, chiefs like Henry Prince, chiefs like Yellow Quill uh, really had uh, problems with the way Treaty 1 was being implemented. And it was specifically regard to promises, verbal promises that were made for the through the negotiations, but were not delivered in the following years. And some of these were the um, Treaty Agricultural Benefits that I mentioned earlier. It was Henry Prince from Peguis First Nation who first asked for assistance making a living with farming. During this period, uh, the bison or the buffalo had almost completely been exterminated, and many First Nations were looking to other ways of making a living. Canada promised assistance in the transition to agriculture. They did not deliver on that, nor did they include it in Treaty 1. So many of the First Nations after the Treaty 1 negotiations actually refused to accept their annuities. And treaty annuities, they're also another a complicated matter, but in 1871, in the early 1870s, uh, they were set originally for Treaty 1 at $3. But even $3 was a lot of money in 1871. There's actually a worldwide depress depression. And later, uh, treaty annuities of $5 were said to outfit a family of five for six months. So the fact that uh, the chiefs and First Nations were willing to refuse their annuities to argue for these promises is, is quite significant. Canada decides that they need to do something. The treaty commissioners for Treaty 1 get together and they... Um, recollect the promises that were made, they write them down, they include um, a treaty suit, a headman suit, uh, they include uh, buggies for the chiefs, which is really interesting, transportation, there's a discussion about housing in the outside promises, and uh, all these different um, promises that were made during the negotiations that were not part of Treaty 1 then become added through this outside promises memorandum. And so there's a lot of discussion about um, inequality between the First Nations leadership and the treaty commissioners. But really, the outside promises, and, and after the outside promises, um, it was almost a fiasco from the perspective of Canada, because Treaty Commissioner Alexander Morris, during the Treaty 5 negotiations, was required to visit all the Treaty 1 and 2 First Nations again and get them to agree to the outside promises memorandum. One of the ways this was accomplished was to raise the annuity payment from $3 to $5, which again, significant money during this period of time. So 
all of these examples really um, point to agency. Uh, historians use the term agency in terms of the authority of the chiefs. That, based on the fact that the treaty commissioners were under immense pressure, kind of leads to the types of, um, I guess, the types of uh, negotiation negotiating tactics uh, that the Crown used uh, during those negotiations. The current status quo argument for the nature of treaty making is mines did not occur. There was too much differences in culture and language for mutual understanding to take place. Can you discuss the wherewithal in the chiefs and councils at the time of treaty making? And would you also consider them expert negotiators? Absolutely, definitely. They were uh, they were formidable. They were formidable negotiators, and that especially First Nations through long history of the fur trade relationship, through long history with explorers and government agents, there was a meeting of the minds. There was the fact that um, in all these early encounters, First Nations peoples held their own. They weren't intimidated. They understood what um, government. Wanted, they understood what the Hudson's Bay Company wanted, and they used that to their advantage. Uh, there's a, a historian by the name of Arthur J. Ray who really argued that First Nations through the fur trade again had this power and authority to use that economic advantage to the advantage of First Nations. For the first uh, Red River resistance, or I'm I'm uh, going back a bit in my own um, reading, when uh, Wolseley was traveling from from out east to the first uh, real resistance uh, to um, uh, encounter the Métis at uh, Red River, he had to go through Anishinaabeg territory, which resulted in a right away treaty. But on his way down into um, Red River, where Winnipeg is today he encountered um, Henry Prince and Peg West First Nation. And it's really interesting encounter. It's in one of the early newspapers, but um, Wolseley shows up and he it's late at night. They've been marching all day. They're so close to Red River and um, Henry Chief Henry Prince is there and his entourage is there. And so Wolseley is called, called up and comes and he stands there. And Henry Prince comes up and he also stands there and um, neither makes a sound, neither introduces themselves. Neither. Is there something that you would like to say to to uh, to Canada, to my my soldiers? And Henry Prince says, well, if I were in London, if I were in the UK, I would expect that you would want me to explain myself to you for your presence in my territory. And that's what I expect you to do. So it's a really interesting encounter in that uh, Chief Henry Prince uh, relies uh, completely on his sovereignty, completely on his confidence, and he um, stares down Colonel Wolseley and gets him to explain his business in Indigenous territory. So it's a really good example. The whole complicated nature of the First Nations chiefs, the Indigenous leadership, the treaty commissioners, it's really difficult to describe uh, under Morris, who was the Treaty Commissioner for Treaties 3, 4, 5, and 6, uh, also negotiated the outside promises. Uh, he's a very, very complicated figure. Other Treaty Commissioners like uh, William Joseph Christie and James McKay, again, they all have their complications. And 
kind of a, also epitomizes how difficult it is to um, study treaties because you have all these um, competing perspectives. Um, even indigenous leadership, there's no, there isn't really one voice in the leadership. Some chiefs are in favor of, of settlers coming in because they feel that they'll have an economic advantage. Other chiefs like Chief Blackstone for Treaty 3 wanted no part of, of settlers. And so they resisted, resisted, resisted any kind of treaty. So yeah, again, it's very complicated in terms of that of that relationship in 1869. I love that uh, encounter. How did the process of signing treaties evolve over time? Yeah, the, pro the process is very similar. For Canada, treaty making was very much new and they almost stumble into it. It's quite interesting. Um, we've got really great accounts of the Treaty 1 negotiations and you can kind of see uh, Canada kind of stumble into the negotiations, make lots of errors. Uh, one of the errors that Adam G. Archibald, the Lieutenant Governor and the lead Treaty Commissioner for Treaty 1, um, said was that um, he erred when he brought up the issue of land. Because basically when he brought up land in early Treaty 1 negotiations, the um, First Nations chiefs um, claimed basically all of Treaty 1 is their traditional territory. And he kind of had to restart the process. And it was at this point that um, the treaty commissioners decided that they would sever all discussions of land until the close of the negotiations and focus on just the benefits of treaties and none of the liabilities. And so when land is broached, Adam G. Archibald realized that there was no way he was going to um, be able to get a surrender of lands. The chiefs basically claimed sovereignty to the entire territory of Treaty 1. And so it was at that point that the surrender clause ended up in his back pocket, and it was not mentioned during the negotiations. In his dispatch, he basically recommends to all future treaty commissioners that they do the same, that they discuss only the benefits of treaty and none of the liabilities. And that's exactly what happens. Canada develops a strategic plan where they um, discuss, it's almost like the um, the uh, the, sta the statement, uh, sweet promises, treaties are sweet promises because they're um, just the benefits and none of the liabilities, like the surrender clause and the peace and good order clause. And so Alexander Morris for Treaty 3 and later, he discusses, he basically says, uh, what we give you is on top of what you already have. We will not take anything away. We would like to share the land with you to the depth of a plow and this is what um, a lot of the oral historians say, uh, this top six inches, within, which in the context of treaty making makes perfect sense because settlers were coming in to farm. And so what I did in my research, you asked uh, about what what's some of the primary documents. I looked at all of those eyewitness accounts of treaties um, following from what Adams G. Archibald said in his dispatch. I looked at the journalist accounts. I looked at the missionary accounts. I looked at... Um, diaries, letters, any kind of uh, discussion of what happened during treaties. And I looked for any example of where the Crown mentioned land or mentioned the surrender clause, which is part of the text of treaty. And for treaties one through eight, there was there's no examples of that in, in none of the, the primary evidence does Canada mention the surrender clause. And other historians have um, acknowledged that. I was the first one to do it for treaties one through seven. Other historians done it for individual treaties. Um, there's a historian that did it for Treaty 6 and realized that, hey, this is very disingenuous. Uh, Canada has a surrender clause in the text of the treaty, but they don't mention it. 
And that's what the elders say. And that's where I got the um, original idea from was with, was the elders' testimony. All the elders say that um, treaties are peace treaties or land sharing treaties. They're not surrender treaties. And it makes perfect sense. Uh, the primary evidence shows that the elders were correct. The discussion of land never took place. It was all the benefits of treaty, none of the liabilities. And so later, when the Indian Act comes in, when the permanent pass system comes in, when all these uh, restrictions on ceremonies, restrictions on the inability to hire a lawyer, all of these draconian Indian Act policies come in, which prevent people from asserting their rights. It's not until the 50s and 60s after the Indian Act is amended that now we have the elders' testimony uh, coming forward. We have court cases arguing for treaty rights. But um, that period from the end of treaty making till the 1950s and 1960s is really dark because of those Indian Act policies. I guess the only other thing I would add to that with regard to your question about primary documents is um, there's an amazing document. I can't remember if I mentioned this when we when we discussed treaties before, but the um, account of Treaty 3 by Simon James Dawson is quite amazing because Simon James Dawson was a treaty commissioner, but he was very much uh, at home and very much um, had a, a long experience with First Nations in Anishinaabeg territory. Uh, in Treaty 3 territory, and he's Treaty Commissioner representing the Crown, but he he keeps his own account of the Treaty 3 negotiations. He writes down his own version of Treaty 3, and he doesn't share it with the commissioners. It's not part of the official dispatch, which it really should have been, but it's collected with it with his account. And, and his account of the Treaty 3 negotiations show that not only did Canada not mention land or the surrender clause during the negotiations, but they actually, in their accounts of the negotiations, they would actually um, describe surrender language to try to emphasize that they did get a surrender. As I mentioned, there's immense pressure on the treaty commissioners that treaties be successful. And the requirement from the Privy Council is that a surrender lands take place. So they kind of insert all the surrender language into chief speeches, which is not captured by Simon James Dawson. And so that's really the only proof that I found in the archives that Canada not only misled the chiefs about the surrender clause, but they also put surrender language and put the fact that they obtained a surrender into the historical record fraudulently. So then how should the treaties have been sort of uh, acknowledged and honored as in the land is shared? How was, have you got insight from the indigenous communities that you've been interviewing? Like how, how did they actually foresee it, you know, back in then? Well, the, the easiest way is kind of through some of the oral history and the kinship uh, analogies that are used. Uh, the late Harold Johnson used the analogy of um, the treaty relationship as a relationship between cousins or between brothers or siblings. The idea was that um, there would be equality among siblings. And so you have to think about that. That was the vision of treaty. That was the spirit and intent of treaty, uh, like for Treaty 1, 1871, or where I am. Kind of also like the um, two canoes going down a single river. And the idea is that one canoe represents uh, First Nations and one canoe rep represents newcomers. And the idea is that you don't want to have a foot in one canoe and a foot in the other canoe because you'll fall in the river. The idea is that um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous governance would be separate but equal. 
And I always kind of like that analogy. And I think it would apply to uh, the later numbered treaties as well. You said that the treaty knowledge and history has been sort of foregone for quite some time. It was only until like the 90s that there was a lot of progress made. And I'm just wondering, how has your work been received amongst your peers and colleagues? And how has it um, sort of made its circles through the um, the discussion? I, I see your work, not the book, but your, um, I guess, publications from your university are quoted in some Wikipedia pages. And one is, um, funny enough, land ownership in Canada, but they don't quote any any of your new work. And it, it's mm. um, it's just interesting to see that. So I'm just wondering, how, how has that oh, been that for you? Interesting. Well, it's kind of funny because when I was doing the dissertation, um, my uh, dissertation chair was Dr. Winona Wheeler. And she said, oh, well, if, if, if you do get this published, if the University of Giant Press agrees to publish it, you'll get nothing but criticism. You'll get nothing but um, negative feedback from it. And so when it finally came out in 2019, it was actually the opposite. There's probably a dozen or more, um, again, if you search my name, uh, reviews, uh, No Surrender, probably about a dozen different reviews, um, academic journals, newspapers, uh, different um, authors have reviewed No Surrender, and 100% of them have been positive, which is really interesting. So I think that I think that might be because there was a real absence of um, academic publications on treaties, and also because, like you say, there was this long um, absence of uh, any discussion about treaties, but the um, but the the response was nothing but positive, which um, was very surprising to me. I'm glad to hear that. Um, yeah, it's it's well deserved work. Uh, clearly, you've you spent many many tireless years on in the archives and the research to 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 speak from the evidence. And, uh, and the book does highlight that you, you don't take too much of a stand. Other than the title, I feel like you're pretty impartial to it all. So it's 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 very well well done work. And well, thank um, you very much. It's been a, a real joy to hear from you. Oh, it was a pleasure. It was a great conversation. I thank you both for, for the invitation. I would like to once again thank our guest, Sheldon Krasowski from Saskatoon, as well as our interviewer, the extraordinary Thomas White Thunderbird, for that remarkable discussion. Next week, we will be looking back to the legacy of the war in Afghanistan, which started 22 years ago as of this date. The show goes to air. Join us then. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us.